Hey guys, before we continue, I wanted to say if you also want to start a podcast of your own, I have a great recommendation for you and it is called Anchor. So why Anchor? It's free, it has easy tools to help you get started and it will distribute your podcast for you. And the best part is, you can make money while doing what you love. Basically, it has everything you need. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started now. Let's proceed to the awesomeness. Welcome to Elmo's Road Podcast. This is Elmo Odor Jr., your host. And um, I have a, a friend, and his name is Rishi. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Rishikesh. Uh, you know, short for Rishi. Uh, I, uh, I live in Hyderabad, which is in southern India. I work with the Indian government. I work on preserving historical heritage. I work on, uh, on restoring ancient buildings of the city. And I'm glad to be on your podcast. <laughs> and yeah, thank you so much for accepting, man. And I, I want to get down to business, you know, ask you, uh, you said you were an agnostic earlier. Um, why why uh, do you uh, have this position? Why, or I guess it's a position of doubt. Um, why? Um, I do because, mainly because, you know, Hinduism does have many rituals in it. Uh, it's a very ancient religion. It has many rituals and uh, a couple of superstitions as well. Um, I have no way of quantifying if God exists or not. I don't know if he exists. Maybe there's a divine force, but for now, I haven't found any way of uh, proving that he exists. Uh, uh, so, I mean, if I can't see it, if I can't perceive it, I cannot be assured of its existence. So in that way, uh, which is what has led to my agnostic uh, beliefs. And I also kind of, uh, as, as a child, I kind of grew up in you know a conservative Hindu family during my early years. And uh, I couldn't read many of the rituals myself. So I thought to myself, what's the point of you know following most of these rituals if you can't connect with them? And uh, there's no there's no way of verifying if if there's a divine spirit or not. So you know, so because of that, that kind of led to my current attitude towards. Okay, so um, yeah, Rishi, uh, I wanted to ask then, um, to you, what would you count as evidence for God? And so because you seem you seem that there's, I think you don't believe there is sufficient evidence for God that's why you're an agnostic so what what are these if God did exist I mean I mean there would have been some intervention by now I mean we see we see so many sins being committed every day we see so many wrongs being committed if there was some sort of divine force there would have been some intervention by now true uh so I see these things and, you know, you think to yourself, is there a God or not? I would be happy if there was a God, but I mean, I don't know. I, there's just no way of knowing. Well, uh, the, uh, some would say there are a lot of ways you can know, for example, like um, revelations, uh, specifically the Bible, Quran, maybe uh, from Hindu uh, philosophies. So how would you account for all of these? There, actually, uh, I, I don't know, but I recall uh, I recall sort of reading about this earlier. Many religious and spiritual experiences are, are linked to certain sections of the brain. Uh, they're, they're linked to how, how you actually perceive reality. Um, that's there. And, and to a large extent, if you look at most of these religious uh, scriptures and books, if you look at most of them, uh, most many of them are sort of based a lot on the societies which existed at that point of time. And they sort of reflect the context of the societies. So if you look at that then, and then if you look at it now, you actually realize it's actually more human than divine. Because if it was something divine, it would be universal. But then if you look at even Islam, it kind of reflects, uh, it kind of reflects like Arab society at that point of time. And if you look at Buddhism, Buddhism takes a lot of influence from Hinduism. And because, you know, Hinduism was a parent religion. So I was thinking, I mean, there's just too many 
human similarities to have something if there was something that was completely divine it would be universal but i don't see that universality at all i see i in this case then your criteria for what would be divine revelation is that it is universal right and but in terms of like the quran for example i would I have reason to think that it, it is a sort of universal, like for example, how they preserve the language, how they how some would say that the the mathematical um, rhythms or uh, uh, equations, I, I guess, of the Quran of how it's written, uh, it's something a lot would say it's perfect, and it even challenges people to uh, to. Uh, make uh, a, a claim that the Quran uh, made a mistake in this uh, at a part of it, you know? I mean, yes, but I mean, if you look at rhythms, uh, human beings have been, uh, have been sort of, uh, uh, they've been creating rhythms for a very, very long time. And if you look at uh, Islamic geometry as well, it, it's reflected most of the mosques, and the dargahs, you know, the dargahs are basically religious uh, uh, outhouses, religious outhouses. So uh, if you look at most of them, you do see like some sort of pattern. And most of these patterns, like they do have roots in those societies. For instance, uh, uh, geometry uh, and algebra, they took a lot of influence from ancient Persia. And ancient Persian uh, and ancient Persian architecture was known to use a lot of geometry. Byzantine architecture used uh, a lot of symmetry. And so if you kind of look at these things, you actually realize that what we actually admire as very, very divine actually has some sort of connection to the human experience. So that's that's what kind of, you know, makes me reflect as to whether or not this is like, you know, uh, genuine or if it can be debated. Uh, in this case, though, I wanted to ask um, for you, uh, what would be the meaning of life? Because the, uh, when you are an agnostic, you don't have the this uh, divine foundation of something like a, a divine command or divine purpose. So how do you act in your life right now? So my purpose is, uh, is based mostly on my upbringing. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm personally non-religious, but one of the things that you do learn uh, when you're in the part of an Indian family is that uh, you need to kind of make your impact on the world. Uh, <laughs> I mean, when you say impact, I mean, there are two different things. For an Indian family, that's about, you know, climbing the ladder and, you know, making a name for yourself. But uh, like for me, the thing is, I, I, I was sort of brought up with this message that, you know, you have a lot of potential and that you should try to change the world. And I feel like that's my purpose. You know, I so I work with the government and I, I try to uh, restore historic buildings. And uh, so I, I think to myself that, you know, even if, this, uh, if, even if there isn't any sort of religious re uh, revelation, uh, my purpose could actually be something related to what I wish to see in society, like my dream or my vision for society. Okay. So um, what would be your dream and vision for society then in that case? It's actually interesting. Uh, I'm, I mean, despite being non-religious, I, I actually do see uh, a role for religious institutions in the future. Uh, I believe that uh, many of the institutions that we have today, uh, like the UN, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, you know, IMF, uh, many of these institutions are very, very impersonal and they don't embody the, the spirit of charity that, you know, early, earlier religious institutions used to have. So in my future, I would like to see religious institutions which sort of play a more active role in people's lives in terms of committing to social justice, you know. And uh, in terms of committing to social justice, and I, I also want to see uh, a decrease in things like the social, like social media. I think there should be a huge reduction in social media, and I think the focus should be more on the local. Uh, religion and culture both are very local forces, and which is why I see a bigger role for these things. If you look at even the, if you look at even environmental uh, preservation, it's strongly linked to religion. 
because if you're not attached to the land if you're not attached to your local town or village then it's very difficult for you to preserve the environment because preserving the envi environment can can never be entirely global it's linked to the community so which is why i see uh, environmental preservation local de development and you know uh, and culture and religion I, I see all these things as part of one whole so okay but ultimately though if if you uh, have this sort of vision for the world uh, I, I would say it would be utterly meaningless in the end, I guess, because ultimately uh, human civilization will have its end and therefore like um, what your purpose here in life uh, is also uh, in a way uh, sort of nihilistic. How would you uh, respond to that? I mean, the thing is, I mean, even assuming that human civilization were to come to an end, uh, if you actually look at it, every species in this planet has sort of made its mark uh, and it's kind of left its legacy behind. So even let's say maybe two millennia from now, let's say we were to disappear or uh, let's say our civilization were to get destroyed. The thing is, we would still kind of leave our legacy behind and we would and another species when it kind of when it kind of sprouts out from the ruins. Uh, they will sort of embody the legacy that we leave behind. So in that way, I feel that, you know, we're all sort of connected to each other, and which is what, which is what the point is of most religions. It talks about the interconnectedness. Uh, even in Hinduism, there's, there's the concept of impermanence, that, not, that nothing that is material will, you know, remain permanent. So the thing is, even if everything ends at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily end because it'll be it'll be the start of another cycle and that new cycle will actually have elements of the previous cycle so let's talk about your philosophy you know um you named yourself in the uh, group chat eastern ubermatch that was interesting i love i love nietzsche by the way and um so why that name uh, okay i i call myself I, I call myself that because uh, I, I believe I always try to be a better version of myself every time and uh, every day. And I was kind of fascinated by Nietzsche's concept of, you know, Ubermensch, uh, that, you know, the, the superhuman. I think all of, uh, I, I, and for me personally, I, you know, when I try to be a better version of myself every day, I think this kind of concept really resonated with me. So, which is why I sort of, uh, it kind of appealed to me, you know, and I, I like, you know, comic books and superhero movies and yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, in, in this case, though, um, uh, do you have your own perspective or take on what uh, Nietzsche means in his Ubermensch? Does it actually uh, reflect what track society is on right now? Um, I mean, the Ubermensch thing was was very personal to me. I mean, I uh, it was not uh, in any ways related to how I perceive society or how I wanted society to be. It was something very personal to me because uh, if you look at Nietzsche's life, uh, it wasn't a very accomplished life. Uh, he didn't achieve a lot, but he still had he uh, he still had these visions of grandeur for himself, and I kind of admired that quite a bit because uh, it doesn't. Uh, Despite the challenges that he faced, he was still he was still optimistic about who he was as a person, and I found that pretty admirable. So, I I mean I don't see this in any way connected to how I envision society, but it appealed to me on a personal level. Okay, so in this sense, though, uh, uh, you you said you worked in a in, in for the government in a for cultural heritage, I guess, uh, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So, in this uh, case, I guess that you could mi uh, mix your passion or your purpose with what you do in your workplace or career, right? Mm -hmm. So, in, in, in this sense, um, uh, what have you learned or maybe what philosophical wisdoms have you gained from this work? And maybe you can share it to the audience right now. This is a bit of a hard question because, uh, you know, working with the government, there are some things that you have in mind which you want to achieve. 
there are things that the government wants to achieve. There are things that the people want. These three things are, are always competing priorities, I would say. Uh, one of the things that I've learned, you know, working in the field of heritage is that there's something that goes beyond heritage. It's not just about uh, a, a historic building. Ultimately, what people want is a good and vibrant community life. They want, uh, I would say some people, it's a bit of a controversial statement. I shouldn't say it, shouldn't say it. But more than anything else, people want uh, as to have a sense of community. They want to feel uh, as if, you know, if there's a celebration happening, they can get together. Uh, the big the big advantage with uh, preserving historic markets and historic monuments and buildings is that these places have had communities which have been living in them for hundreds of years. If you were to destroy them, you destroy the community and the community would just entirely disappear, you know? And, that's, and that would also sort of lead to chaos within the city because it's only when communities thrive that the city thrives. So that's uh, one of the things is that uh, when we've actually worked on preserving many historic monuments and many historic buildings, we actually interact with the communities over there. And when we restore these buildings and we, and we restore these spaces, the communities thrive. Uh, the real estate prices rise. One thing is the real estate prices really rise. And uh, the other thing that, that happens is that uh, tourism, there's a big increase in tourism. Uh, people go to the boutique shops, buy bangles. Uh, bangles, by the way, are Indian ornaments. And uh, uh, they, they buy jewelry, which is a big part of Indian culture. So they, they buy these things. It's, it's a vibrant ecosystem. And I would say that at the end of the day, it's not just about heritage. It's all about the communities. It's all about what the people want and making them happy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this case, though, um, now that you uh, mentioned the government, I want to ask, uh, does the government actually actively uh, go, up, uh, go on uh, projects to preserve uh, historical monuments like these, for example, in the, in the sense that um, there would be no marginalized uh, people, for example, let's say uh, Muslims? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, could you rephrase your question? Uh, because uh, you're from India right now, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and I, I, it seems to me that um, in terms of the, the issues with Kashmir and India, there, uh, there is... Yes. A, there, there is that. There, there's, a there's a religious tension. Mm -hmm. uh, in my city, uh, my city ha uh, has a strong Islamic heritage. All the monuments that we work on, all the buildings that we work on, are Islamic mo are Islamic monuments. So the kind of you know the Hindu temples that you see you know on, nat on National Geographic, it's not entirely the case over here. We have more Middle Eastern monuments, and in many, and very often in those markets and in those historic areas, it's Muslims. They're mostly Muslims. Many of them are very poor. Many of them are, are, are many of them are marginalized. And uh, many of them, uh, the thing is, their condition is very precarious. Let's put it that way. Uh, they live in very, very vulnerable conditions. When you actually restore a monument, what happens is that you improve the facilities. You make sure that there's air conditioning, there's ventilation, there's more hygiene, that people are sort of brought into the formal sector. They don't exist in the informal sector anymore. They're brought into the formal sector. And when they're brought into the formal sector, they won't be exploited by those who are actually more powerful than them. So in that way, in this city, if, if you are to actually preserve a historic monument, 98% chance it will be a Muslim one. So. Okay. But, um, you know, I, uh, I, I guess that uh, I want to ask then, is there uh, Islamophobia happening in India? Because it's, uh, I've uh, talked a lot of my friends and they say that the government itself is actually pro-Hindu and they j just ignores the Muslim community. Slippery overall. question, man. Slippery question. I work with the provincial government, but um, with permission, if I may, uh, I would not like to discuss this too much. Okay. But because 
uh, in my capacity as you know working with the government it is it is not advisable mm-hmm. there are religious tension um, there are certain religious tensions right now uh, the country is kind of going through that phase mm-hmm. uh, and you know it's it is very sensitive i uh, i mostly try to stay off it i'm not a very political person i just focus on what i do i i like beautiful buildings i try to restore them mm-hmm. i don't look beyond you know what's happening in the country uh, apart from a, just a a superficial interest i don't i don't go beyond that so yeah okay um so my question would also include um your take on christianity um i guess that you were also brought up in this environment um how how would you uh, analyze christianity in its own merits and say that um i would just prefer to be agnostic in this sense it's, it doesn't it doesn't seem convincing to me um i mean i don't know much about christianity apart from the fact that it's an abrahamic religion uh along with uh, islam and judaism but i will say one thing that what appeals to me personally about christianity is uh is uh firstly the uh, the concept of redemption you know uh, i think that's a very uh, big theme in christianity which i'm kind of really fascinated by and if you in fact go to most of these churches you you feel a sense of peace there. and you feel as if you know every, anyone can be redeemed and i think that that thing is very beautiful about christianity and another thing is actually forgiveness if you look uh, i i mean i uh, i studied in europe and i actually saw that many of the churches over there uh despite the fact that you know the christ is crucified and you know it's a lot of suffering there's also a sense of peace you know there's also a sense of you know things can be better things can be redeemed uh that's what i like about christianity i mean i don't know much about the religion but yeah i guess yeah Well, um I guess that um if you haven't considered Christianity, I would recommend um <laughs> uh, uh taking a look and maybe accepting Jesus Christ into your heart, but um I'm not here to proselytize you. But um Mike uh, another question uh, that has come to my mind is uh, when it comes to your view on the afterlife, do you believe in a life after death? I hope there is I really hope that there is a life uh, after death I'll be happy if there's one uh but I don't know I guess I just don't believe uh, I just don't believe in it there's not enough proof there's not enough evidence I'll be happy if you tell me that in my next life like I'll be like uh, a beautiful place full of meadows and snow capped mountains or something like that I'll be happy if uh, if there's an afterlife like that for me But well, we are I actually, don't know. I don't think actually, it exists. Uh, we're actually already living in a world with beautiful meadows and uh, beautiful mountains, but in the sense that, um, but there is an urgency, though. For example, like uh, this uh, sort of hell that's waiting for you in the afterlife. It is uh, some uh, very compelling to look into these these things, and being agnostic. Uh, doesn't seem to uh, answer these uh, questions it is difficult because i mean one thing i will say is that uh, you know people who when you believe in something like you get a lot of strength out of it uh that's one thing that you know religious people like and that gives people confidence you know when it comes to leading their lives i mean i personally i i'm not really convinced uh, I would be happy if someone told me tomorrow that you know there's a god and there's an afterlife that would make me feel reassured it really would i would be happy i would embrace it fully but i i just have no evidence i have no proof and that's why i just uh, i assume that as things were they will always be mm-hmm. but well you do know that as things were and and they will always be you will at some point in your life die like all of us and <laughs> but we don't know what's happening going to happen when we die or where we, where the soul will go or if we do have a soul so uh, it's uh, very in a i guess essential to take a look into that matter i guess the closest thing that you know that will probably come to a soul you know after we die is that you know uh, maybe us uh, our children will remember us 
so that way uh, maybe our grandchildren will remember us so maybe afterlife is something similar to that you know maybe our spirit lives in them i don't know mm-hmm. but yeah mm-hmm. apart from that nothing that i can see mm-hmm. okay let's talk about uh, your views on what is good and evil you know um i guess that every person has this uh more subjective moral standard in which they live in in their day-to-day lives uh, what would be uh, in your case your own personal standard of what is good and what is bad um i mean personally i try to i try to be uh, as good a human being as possible uh, i i i'm i am not a troublemaker i try to be as kind as possible to everyone else um as for uh, i mean if it feels right if your conscience tells you that something is right then i think you should do it uh if if it's wrong then i guess it's wrong i mean harming anyone in any way is wrong and or like humiliating someone is not right or you know murdering someone is not right so if your conscience tells you that something is wrong it's wrong <laughs> otherwise it's right exactly and Um, but when you refer to your own conscience, uh, do you always agree with it? Uh, because sometimes your conscience says, "Oh, the, uh, taking this money is good," or but it, it, it in a sense that you would uh, regret what your conscience actually tells you. So, do you always abide by your conscience, or? Yeah, I mean, so here's the odd thing. Um, uh, from my personal experience. Uh, there is a straightforward kind of conscience which you ca- you kind of draw which you kind of uh, draw justifications from when you uh, uh, when you try to decide if something is good or bad there are other things for instance uh, i i come from a very privileged family you know i come from a very privileged family and i, I didn't really have to struggle much for, for anything much and Well, one of the things that you know your conscience always asks you is because you because uh, because you were endowed with with so much because of those things i mean uh, are you sort of taken for granted and you know i live in a very unequal country so i sometimes ask myself you know when the rest of the country is living in so much poverty does it is it morally right to be privileged is one thing i kind of ask myself apart from that uh, once again this is very subconscious this is very unconscious you know uh, uh apart from that i don't really see any kind of uh, conscience which bothers me in any other way so okay so in this sense though um you uh, i i would it's not to offend but you would be no different from let's say hitler or, for instance because for hitler his conscience would uh, tell him that what he's always been doing is right you know all the holocaust and everything so in in this sense um uh, your own moral standards would be no different from stalin or or other uh, evil men <laughs> oh come on man that's a bit harsh because uh, i did i didn't oversee a genocide or do anything like that uh but uh, the thing is i'm not a very confrontational person and if i feel something is right then i do it i have a personal standard when it comes to doing things i don't try to harm anyone uh i don't try to do anything that will offend a person uh, i think uh, i i i'm not too familiar with the ideological standards of morality but uh from a personal standpoint if something feels right to me then i would do it and uh Yeah, I guess that's that's all. You know, it's very instinctive. It's nothing more than that. Okay, uh, I respect that. And um, just so you know, I I I didn't want to offend you or anything. It was just a a comparative analysis. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, another question that has come to my mind is when it comes to, for example, um, your own understanding of who you are or your identity. Uh, th- is it something that or are we simply evolved at apes just here to uh, have sex and eat and sleep and die, um, or is there a greater goal for in this life? Why not both? Is my question. Because uh, we can do both. I mean, uh, 
the thing is one of the uh, one of the big fallacies uh, i wouldn't call it a fallacy but i would say one of the uh, misconceptions that people have is that just because you experience lust uh just because you experience lust does not mean you can't experience love uh just because you know you eat a lot like a gluten doesn't mean uh, you can still do a good job and you can still go to the gym at the end of the day so i think i think it's both you know i, I don't think uh, it's either or, either this or that it's it's a combination of both i feel uh this also you know maslow's hierarchy so you know if your basic needs are met then you focus on bigger things Okay, then um, can I ask you about your views on politics? But not in in India, but essentially, uh, what sort of political um, uh, system should uh, reign over most governments? For example, let's say, um, uh, should the government uh, 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 provide less taxes, more taxes, that that kind of stuff? tricky question tricky question um you know every country's uh, politics are very different is very different um india's politics is very complex because there are too many variables here religion caste uh, geographic geographic community i mean uh, i i'll be honest on this one i'm not entirely sure uh, which system would be the best but uh, there are some things that you can take into account while considering how good a system is one thing is that it should be stable it should be very very stable uh if uh, the thing is uh, i mean every empire will fall but the 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 marker of a good empire is how long it lasts you know so uh, the thing is uh, your institutions need to be stable i think that's one good uh, that's one very very important variable while deciding whether a political system is good or not uh number 2 there should be clarity in the rules uh, of a system the more complex a political system is the the more uh, the more uh, confounding it becomes for the citizens which is what bureaucracy is what happens in the bureaucracy is that it this long list of forms things that you can do that you can't do and things like that uh there should be clarity in the rules and thirdly there should be some sort of consensus uh when i talk about consensus between the people and uh, and and the government there should be some sort of consensus i'm not saying this consensus needs to be 100% it needs to needs to be 100% solid but there needs to be some sort of consensus you know you can't just have like people who completely disagree with the state or a state which completely disagrees with the people uh these are just broad things which i feel are important for a system political system but if you're asking me as to which system is the best i can't really think of any because each one has its flaws uh you know if you have a, if you have an oligarchy like russia does that's not very great either uh if you have a messy democracy like we do you know that's not very great either look at china it's developed so much but you know it's a dictatorship so if you ask me i can't really think of any ideal system like that maybe we can take the best of different systems and you know put it together like a cocktail yeah but in this case though because uh, as you said like that we have a, a a world where uh, every region has its own culture religions and uh, its own problems you know but um, when it comes to for example uh, third world outsourcing um the, uh, i i i would see this as a as a, a new form of slavery i guess because of for example the sweat so- sweatshops and all that stuff um how would you view this i don't think it's right mainly because uh, it's this kind of system that we currently live in it's based on a system of uh, it's based on the assumption that you know resources will go on forever it will uh, that, that that i think is a main problem the fact that you have sweatshops and you know you have factories in different parts of the world and you know the working conditions are not very great over there that itself is based on you know an endless system of exploitation of resources what happens is that when you keep exploiting resources all the time you also assume that you know you'll keep growing all the time it's like you know when you're young and you know your parents keep indulging you indulging you with different things that didn't happen to me by the way my, my parents are pretty strict sucks so 
but i do know that you know if your parents keep indulging you you think that you know it can kind of go on forever and then the child kind of grows up to be spoiled and he he goes to the real world where he realizes that you know things don't work the way it works at home uh, i'm giving this example because that's the kind of you know situation that our our uh, world is in. it's it's kind of it endlessly exploits resources when you endlessly exploit resources what also happens is that the laborers kind of just become cogs where their job is just to process resources in different ways primary secondary and tertiary sector i think this is actually the main problem with uh, our current society and uh, one thing is endless extraction of resources and its aftermath and secondly there's no regard for sustainability uh, one thing is you know using all the resources the second thing is not giving paying any attention to uh, to you know those resources being recycled all the, uh, in different ways so i think this is the main issue with today's uh, in today's world so yeah yeah it's true you know um when you uh, uh for example when we talk about this um uh i i i remind uh, remind myself of the i guess the cruises uh, international cruises because in, in this uh in this industry like 80% or 90% of of the crew members are that are hired are actually from the philippines and if you uh research yeah If you research, if you uh, take a look into uh, what uh, work environment they have, it's really horrible. Like it's really, really horrible, and it's 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 something that um, uh, you know they they couldn't get away with this with uh, U.S. citizens or European citizens, but they can verily and easily get away with such um, conditions with uh, people workers from third world countries. And this is something that uh, I we have to look into because um, I guess that it's it's part of economics, it's part of capitalism. But we it's just because it's it works, you know, just because it's okay and in, in part of the system doesn't mean that it should be that it's moral. And so when we when you ask me um, what political system should uh, we have, uh, it's different from what moral. Uh, system we should have so it's really different but in this case though because um, when we uh, when we uh, consider like for example Marxist or communist systems it just doesn't work because of human nature because of how we are genetically inclined but I hope to see a future where um, if, if robots or AI are AI are the only workers, then I guess that they would just have to pay us universal basic income. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a very uneasy future because even if that happens, it would still be it would still be difficult because the way human beings are, they'd always find a way to co-opt resources. And I think that is dangerous for a system. And you think that you know you can keep that you can keep consuming without any end. And that's what the banking uh, sector is also based on. They they think they can keep manipulating money for endless generations, uh, you know, markets and things like that. That's what worries me more than anything else. Or we can always argue it's a very foolish thing to do. It's a very stupid thing to do because you know the two thousand eight two thousand nine crisis. But our lives are short, and in our short lives, we we can't perceive much damage. It should be done in future generations. So. And um, what's fascinating is that India has a unique factor in in their own in your own system. It's it's what you call the caste system. Well, in my country, there's no such thing as that. It's really surprising. Um, I guess that it doesn't actually mean that just because you're Brahmin, you're, you're rich. You know, it's not really more uh, 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 wealthy against poor. It's just this uh, ancient traditional system that is in place for thousands of years. Um, how do you look at this, and what, what are your views on uh, what its impact on the country is? There are two things here. Uh, one thing is that the caste system is obviously wrong. Uh, it's horribly unjust. It's terribly wrong. The other thing is uh, is also that the market economy has changed the nature of caste quite a bit. Uh, it's 
it's similar to how you perceive it, but in many ways, it's also very different. Uh, these days, caste is based on, uh, I, I can tell you one thing, that most of rural India, is uh, things are based on caste. In urban India, things are changing. Uh, in urban India, caste is based on certain things which are very specific to how Indian cities are changing. The ability to speak English, uh, where you stay, your, your, I mean, your, your last name does matter, but if you can speak very good English and if you can, you know, if you do live in the right area, that becomes a caste on its own. And then for many generations, you know, they'll find out that, you know, oh, your, your, your father lived in this area and, you know, this was his last name and he lived in this area. And, you know, he was, he, uh, he was a rich man. And then that becomes a that becomes like you know that perpetuates itself and it becomes very generational i think i think the whole nature of the market economy and capitalism it's changed caste quite a bit it's it's similar to how some people perceive it but also different because uh, because you know uh, uh, industrializations change india quite a bit so that's how it works in india but um also I, I, in terms of like politics you know there um there what's interesting is that a certain caste is uh, more privileged than others for example uh the middle class and lower classes have like free tuition and free um and a lot of free stuff compared to what uh, upper class would have yeah that's a good question in fact this is something we you know which has been vigorously discussed quite a bit uh, one one of the things is that uh, caste discrimination begins at a very early age. I would say, uh, I would say this: it begins at a very early age, and you know, let's say you're in an Indian village and you belong to a lower caste, you'll you'll be sitting at the back of the class while the teacher's teaching you, and the kids who belong to an upper caste, they'll be sitting at the front of the class. It starts at a very early age. You'll be served less food. Uh, those things start at a very early age. And one of the things is that by the time they actually enter university, or by the time they enter university, it's just, it becomes kind of part of their mentality. The big problem with the whole uh, Indian affirmative action policy, the, or we call it the reservation policy, is that they don't actually tackle it when it comes. They don't actually try to make cultural changes like at the very beginning. What they do is, you know, you enter university and then they say something like, 50% is uh, reserved for, you know, members of this caste. They would say something like that. What they don't seem to understand is that this starts at a very early age. From the time you're born, it starts then. Just because you enter university doesn't mean that, and, and you have reservations, you know, you reserve a certain number of seats. That's not going to automatically change, you know, how they're treated. So this is a big, <laughs> the, this is the big policy with, you know, government policy. Wow. Now, if you do point this out, it's, it's very controversial. But yeah. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I uh, can I ask, is it political? Is it uh, religious? Or is it just a, a culture thing? Um, when some for someone to, re oh okay, then in, in this case though, um, for example, if the government were to, uh, uh, impose like a secularism in terms of how the caste system should be removed from the from the the country itself uh how who would respond like which institutions would respond would, would the religious ones be or cultural or is it or, or political ones good question this is a good question i'm trying to think because you know i i i have i have been to rural india but i haven't been in rural india that much so I'm trying to think because there are many variables over here, you know, there's political, there's cultural, and there's religious. So I mean, it has to be all three, in my opinion, because a lot of caste discrimination happens in rural India. And uh, in I don't know about other countries, but in India, we have something called the panchayat. So the panchayat is a village institution. It's composed of a group of elders who belong to an upper caste. These people are linked to people in the government. And what also happens is that you have these politicians, you know, who kind of advertise these, these freebies to people of different castes. They say, 
if you belong to my caste, I give you, I give you this. You know, it's like appeasement. It's like populism. I would say that ultimately it has. I would say ultimately it has to start from a religious basis because caste is something that's very specific to Hinduism. So it needs to start from a on a religious level uh, at the grassroots level. But to spread awareness, it needs to be political. Uh, well, let's say I was um, someone who was a Christian Indian. You know, I don't care about the religious stuff. Um, if the if a, a, a policy of the government were to be enforced against the caste system, would I care about this? Oh, dude, dude, you're asking some controversial questions. I'll tell you why. I don't mind answering them, but you know, you know India right now and stuff like that. So, I will say this. Uh, just because we, uh, caste is something that's very integral to Hinduism, um, and it's also integral integral to Indian society. If you convert, doesn't necessarily mean that your the caste system is going to go. People are still going to assume that you're a Christian convert, you know. To people will still kind of associate you with that caste. So, I so. In response to your question, it has to start on a religious level. So it ha it has to start at the very rock bottom, you know, in the villages. But it, it works like this. I'll, let me give an anecdotal example, because uh, that's generally what I'm good at. So uh, let's say there's a random person uh, who belongs to a lower caste in the village. And uh, let's say that he starts a movement in his village uh, to abolish caste people will start to recognize him and then he'll get elected into the village council. After he gets elected into the village council, then he'll join the provincial council. He'll join the town council. After that, he'll join the provincial council. By the time he gets to the national level, he would have passed a bill. He would have passed a bill or an amendment to abolish the caste system. So it works like that. On a, on a local level, you need to kind of change people's minds. For it to become legal for the Let's put it that way. I see. I see. So, um, but uh, can I ask then, uh, for example, um, when you describe the rural villages, like what's the difference? Like, I guess there could be cities, there could be uh, provinces, but what's the difference between the culture and communities in the rural rural villages and in more urban societies? Uh, parts of the society good question it's a world apart it's a huge 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 world apart in fact in most countries you would not find a bigger uh divide cultural divide between the rural and urban regions than india uh rural india is kind of still stuck in you know like centuries before okay like uh so if you go to if you go to the cities you know you'll find some places which look which look like you know hong kong or Manhattan, so some of the places look like that. But if you go to the villages, it's it's, not, it's just not very great. Uh, on top of that, you know, traditions are very, very strong there. You have like different parts of the village where different caste members stay. So if you belong to an upper caste, you stay in like in the center of the village. In a lower caste, you don't even live inside the village, you live outside the village, you know? So it's very traditional. Uh, and the cities are very different. Uh, the reason why caste cannot survive in the cities is because cities are all about immigrants. You cannot, uh, so people cannot find out which caste you belong to. So it's because people are complete strangers to each other. So when you're a complete stranger to each uh, to one another, how can you find out which caste the other person belongs to? In the cities, there's only a difference between your migrants and local people. In the villages, there's a difference between members of different castes. Mm -hmm. Well, um, th this has been very interesting, I guess, and uh, 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 and we seem to be over time. But um, one last question, uh, Rishi, beca uh, because it's um, uh, been an awesome conversation. I've learned so much, especially about the caste system and your own views on life and the and its meaning. Um, my my last question would be, um, what is your 
your vision or like um i guess what actions would one take in order to make this world uh, a better place good question i'm um uh, it's just this so overwhelming so i'm um, i'm trying to think so um i i guess the first one would be we need to uh, we need to start descaling you need to start descaling things right now things exist on a very uh, centralized level so you know you have like the un you have the imf you have the world bank and then you have the nation state it's just uh, it's just too many central institutions trying to govern large numbers of people you need to kind of really reduce it we need to have more local governance uh you know we need to have like local people ruling over local people because you know they can connect with uh, each other so i think that's one thing that's very important uh the other thing is uh, i also think you know indigenous uh, indigenous ways of living need to be revived which are you know is very specific to different countries uh for instance uh, in philippines for instance you have those uh, i'm not very familiar with the philippines but uh philippines is a polynesian culture right so you have those reed boats and then you have those nice stilt houses you know to to prevent flooding you know so that kind of uh, you know <laughs> this is my knowledge of the philippines so and you know this uh, this this volcanic ash you know that kind of thing uh, if you go to any city today it all looks identical if i were to go from from mumbai to new york right now they would look identical they would look the same and they they use the same uh, the same forms of forms of you know exploiting resources they have the same culture the same people as well you know and that kind of the, the so the entire world becomes a machine because of that and the machine kind of uh, it becomes boring even if you go to instagram every second person is, is you know is kind of having the same story they go to some different country and stuff like that and so the entire world kind of becomes a machine we need more diversity we need uh, uh we need more you know different uh different countries having their own specific technology their, their their own specific culture and their own specific ways of producing things you know we need to have that kind of thing and uh, thirdly i think uh, uh, another thing is that we need uh, we, we need a specific community of people who who can be uh, who can be entrusted with uh, preserving local resources like you know tribesmen you know how the native american tribes they actually like have a, a person who's in charge of saving a forest so i think we need to do uh, i mean two things are very important one thing is we need to go back to more traditional ways uh, cultural ways and uh, we uh, secondly we need to uh, we need to design a, a better system for uh, for conserving environmental resources <laughs> So that's the end of it. Thanks for tuning in guys. This is your host Elmo Ador Jr. and thank you for listening in and please subscribe. Please follow us on Facebook. Please please follow this. Please. Thanks. Thank you.